Thank you very much. Well, I have to tell you, New York City is growing on me. <laughs> uh, we, uh, I, have, I looked around here tonight, uh, today and just realizing that uh, your city is literally a mission field in so many ways. So many people need Christ, don't they? And uh, whatever place you go, you see people, they're coming and going and uh, moving in different directions. And we were on the subway a little bit this afternoon. I looked around and I thought to myself, there's so many hopeless people here. I look at them, it just seems like there's just no life in their eyes. They're just going about their business, you know. And so I, uh, I just really think that uh, God is doing some great things here. And, and I think we need about probably a thousand churches in New York City to reach the, the multitude. And so you need to pray that God will send more laborers. And, you know, that's one of the prayer requests that the Lord gives to us. We're to pray for laborers. The harvest truly is plenty, but he said the laborers are few. And so we'd like to see more laborers come to New York City and be a part of what God is doing. And once again, I want to say thank you for your kindness today. I sure do appreciate uh, the fellowship of God's people. You know, we think about the meeting of the church. And when we think about a church, it doesn't really, it's not really about the size. It's the kind of sort that God gives to us, the sort of church that it is a New Testament church. It doesn't have to be large. But if it's a proper New Testament church, when that congregation comes together, the Lord meets with us and we have the meeting of the church. And that's important business. And so thank you for being here on a Sunday night. And I know many of you perhaps have a busy week ahead of you, but there's no better way to start a good week than with the Lord and being in the Lord's house and getting your spiritual batteries charged. Lord willing, get back here on Thursday night, get them recharged and, you know, just keep going for the Lord. And we certainly do believe that the Lord is coming very, very soon. And so we need to be looking for that. Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Colossians chapter 3, please. Colossians chapter 3. And I want to speak to you tonight on the new man and his responsibilities. The new man and his responsibilities. We'll begin reading here in just a moment in verse number 10. We'll read down to verse number 17. And uh, again, the Apostle Paul is talking to this church at Colossae that he was obviously instrumental in, in helping to get established. And he's writing to them this sacred truth of God's word. And he speaks to them about the new man. There's some things that we need to do, some things we need to put off, some things we need to put on. We begin in verse number 10, if you would, and if you're able to stand, let's stand for just a moment. We'll read these eight verses, and then I'll pray, and you may be seated. We'll get into the message tonight. The Bible says in verse number 10, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uh, uh, nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all, and notice, and in all. Verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. And uh, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which ye also are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for another Sunday. And Lord, as we go back over our mind, we think of 
hundreds of Sundays, Lord, that we have spent in the church house meeting with congregations, Lord, primarily the congregation we pastor and have been a part of for so many years. And Lord, we're grateful to be here in, uh, in Astoria tonight with the Open Door Bible Baptist Church. We're thankful, Lord, for the, the heritage of this church, Lord, and the, the years that the, this church has been here, the difference that it's made in the community, and the impact that it's had on this region and on the world. And Father, I pray tonight that you would help us to help this church. Lord, please uh, bless us. Help us, Lord, as we open this truth that's found here in this passage. May it be a blessing to us, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When I was a boy, probably about six, maybe seven years old, my father bought an automobile. Now, this wasn't just any automobile. He had had cars from the time that I could remember, that I was old enough to remember. And my dad was kind of a car guy, but this particular car was an unusual car. It was probably around 1964, 1965. And when he bought it, it was already old. So, in other words, it wasn't, you know, if we go back in our mind, we think 1965. He had a 1965 car tonight. And that would be considered an antique here in 2018. Well, we're going back to 1965, and in 1965, this car was an antique. Someone had started uh, the restoration on this vehicle, but they stopped. Now, as I recall that vehicle, when I was just a boy, my dad brought it home. It, uh, it literally was, as I said, old, and it had some surface rust on it, but it was no, in, in no way was it rusted through. So, in other words, there was just kind of a little bit of surface rust, and some of the chrome on it was, uh, was in need of restoration, and so when he brought it home, it was, it was a, again, it had been, began the restoration. Somebody had rebuilt the engine and had done some work on the transition, uh, transmission, but it went no further. And it would be the kind of car that what I call is a cool looking car, okay? Uh, it had what I call the swooped running boards and, and it, it had, uh, it had, uh, a, a cloth top and, and it had, uh, it had a chest like trunk on the rear of it. And uh, again, it was just, it was really a, a neat looking car. But, but this car at this point needed a lot of work. It, it needed a new paint job, you know. Uh, it needed somebody to, to take the time, the effort and expense to, uh, to get it so it, it could be repainted. It had what was known as a brome top, you know. Uh, we, I go back to the 1970s and people would have vinyl tops on their cars, you know. We, we don't do that anymore hardly, but uh, they, then, you know, you would... It was, uh, we thought that was something new, but really it went back to the age of, of the classic automobiles. And this had a cloth top, a brome top on it, but it was shredded. And, and if you got inside the car in, in, the, in the seats, there were springs coming out of the seats. And it was just, it, as I said, it just needed some work. It needed somebody to do some work on it. Most of the chrome was pitted and it needed to be redone. So I'm saying while the car had potential, it needed a lot of work. Well, my dad bought that car for $700. So $700 back in the 1960s, that was quite a bit of money. But he brought it home and he put it in the garage. We had a single car garage and my dad put it in the garage and, and it sat there. We lived at a, an, a, an address called 4323 West 131st Street. And so that car sat in the garage for years because my dad was raising kids. He was raising three kids and he had no money for restoring automobiles. He hardly had the money to buy it, but he thought, boy, I'm going to jump on this as an opportunity. So he took advantage of it. Well, the day came when my dad came into some money. And so one of the things he and my mother agreed on was that they would take some of that money and begin the restoration of this old automobile. That was probably 
1970, 70, 71, 72. And I remember my dad sending that car away. And the first thing that they did, of course, was they, he sent it to a body shop. So he sent it away. And, of course, I want you to think in your mind of a car that obviously needed a paint job. As I said, it had some surface rust. And, and most of the paint had been worn away. So I remember as a kid, when before my dad restored that car, I remember going out in the garage from some of my friends from the neighborhood and we'd use those swoop running boards as a slide, you know. And so we'd slide down there because, you know, it needed a paint job. You're probably not going to hurt it too much. And so uh, we, would, we would play in that car and act as if we were driving it, you know. And my friends would climb in the back seat and I'd cry, climb behind the wheel and I'd act like I was driving that car. So the day came when he started to restore this automobile, sent it away. And, and of course, as, he, as it got sent away, when it came back, it looked different. It was a different looking automobile as the paint was restored. And then, uh, as I, I think about it, the next thing that he did was they did the upholstery. And I remember as a boy going to an upholstery shop and my dad picking out the cloth for the, for the inside and the carpet for the floor and the cloth for the top. And so they sent it away. So it had the paint job. Now he's doing the, the upholstery. And when it came back from the upholstery shop, it had all new seats and there were no more springs coming out and the new carpet on the floor and, and that top was not shredded anymore. It was, it was restored back to its, its glory. And then the day came when, when my dad obviously began to put the chrome back on. He sent the chrome away to different places and they replated it and restored it. And so he started putting these big headlights on it that were chrome and, and added the, the, the uh, horns that hung underneath there. And there was some other chrome uh, on the trunk on the back that was just, all of it was just restored. And it began to look like a, a different automobile. And finally, the thing that had to be done when he bought it, it had these, these uh, t- regular tires on it, these like black wall tires. And, and of course, the rims on the car had... It needed work as well, and so he finally did the special order, ordered these tires, and sent it away to the tire shop. They took the wheels off, took the tires off. They sandblasted those wheels, and they painted them this real beautiful uh, finish of like a pale yellow, and then they put these big, like, five- or six-inch white wall tires on the thing that went away. And I'm just telling you that when that car came back, the paint was done, the upholstery was done, the chrome was done, and the tires were done. And I have to tell you, it was a different looking automobile at that point. And I've got to tell you, it was pretty amazing. And so as I think about that, uh, I would just have to simply say, don't get me wrong, before this car was restored, you you could drive it down the street and and people would turn and look at it. Because obviously you did not see in 1965 a 1932 classic automobile like that every day. Even though it needed a lot of work, you would still drive it down the street. And I remember us getting in there and we'd pull up to a a place and people would stand and look at the car like, well, that's a car. Uh, that, that's a different looking automobile. It's not like something we see every day. And so you would pull it up. to, And, and so p- people would do that. And so every once in a while, once we got the car restored, you couldn't drive it. Think about this. You could not drive it. And you'd pull up to every traffic light, not just some traffic lights, but every traffic light. People were looking at you with great admiration like, hmm, I wish that was my car. I, I wish I was in that car instead of you were in that car. I mean, that, you could just read their minds as they stood there kind of looking at that automobile. It's like, wow, is that a car? And boy, that must be great to be in a car like that. And so sometimes people would whistle. They, you know, whoo, man, look at that car. They, they'd honk their horns sometimes as you went down the street and wave at you. They, they just want to make sure you saw them seeing you. And it was pretty, pretty amazing as you thought about it. Some people walking down the street... Around the street corners would just stop and you'd watch as you drove by them. They'd go like, 
It was pretty amazing to get in that automobile at that point because it just drew a lot of attention. It got that way. Think about this. This automobile got this attention. Think about this. It got that way because someone went to the trouble and the expense to change it from an old car to a restored old car. Now, you may be saying, well, what's the point? Well, you know, again, I would just simply say that if you had that car at that point after... After it was restored, now even before it was restored, you didn't, I told you my friends and I would get in, we'd play a little bit, but it wasn't like you just take that car out and just, you know, uh, we're going to go, you know, horse around in it. You just didn't do that. Uh, It it, it was a car you didn't drive every day, specifically after it was refinished. You you certainly didn't drive it in the snow and you, my dad, if if he even thought it was going to rain, he didn't take that car out. He'd say, look, you know, we're not taking the car out today. Because it's, it may, uh, you know, it, it's a restored automobile and I, I don't want it to get wet. And so it was a car that got a lot of attention and it took, took a lot of effort. Think about this. It took a lot of effort to get it to a point of what we call a pristine conditioned automobile. So my dad sold that car back in the 80s and he had a lot of cars when I was a young man going, growing up. And even until the Lord took him home a few years ago, the last car he had was a 1949 Willie's Jeepster that he had rebuilt. And so my dad was a car guy. But I'm telling you, he bought that car for $700. I did some research not long ago, seeing what a restored 1932 Auburn sedan brome would bring. I was astonished when I came to understand that that car was worth now about $100,000 to $120,000. Dad, why did you sell it back in the 80s, you know? Uh, you know, so, so I'm thinking to myself, this was, a, this was quite an automobile. Now, again, when we think about the message, we have to say, okay, well, what does that have to do with what Paul is saying to us in Colossians chapter 3? Well, I think it has everything to do with it. Paul is teaching the church at Colossae that God has made them new. See, see when we get saved, God makes us new. And as a result of that, God obviously did a great work in us. And he did that, of course, in the church of Colossae. He does that in the church here, the open-door Bible Baptist church when people get saved. But I want you to look at the phrase in verse number 10. And notice in the sense, he says, And have put on the new man, which is, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now, I want you to see that, and put on the new man. That, that speaks of a one-time event. So we understand, don't we, if we're saved tonight... And we understand Bible doctrine that you don't have to get saved over and over again. I'm glad for that. I'm glad that Jesus Christ died once for all. And every bit of my sin, every bit of it, has been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with that being said, it does not mean that I have a license once I'm saved to go and live any way I want to and be nonchalant and not caring about my spiritual life. No, if I understand the price of my salvation, you know, it's not some cheap undertaking. I understand that it costs Jesus Christ his life and his his blood and his his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary for me to be saved. And so but it was a one time event. I got saved when I was a five year old boy sitting in the church that I'm now the pastor of. I could take you to the place, although it's no longer an auditorium, I could take you to the place where I was sitting in the, in that building. I could take you to the place where the altar was and show you where I knelt down and prayed that day and where I received Jesus Christ and my Savior. That event took one at what took place in my life at a point in time and instantaneously God took me out of the family of the devil and placed me in the family of God. God took me out of the family of man and placed me into the family of God. I, I became a part of his family. God became my father that day. It was a one-time event. Now notice the verb there, put on. Put on. Would you notice that? It expresses completeness and 
definiteness. In other words, at conversion, it points to the unregenerated man becoming regenerate by trusting Jesus Christ. So I want you to know something here tonight. You probably are aware of this, but let me remind you that salvation makes us new. We're new creatures in Jesus Christ. The old man died and the new man was birthed that day. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a great passage of Scripture. If you've not committed it to memory and you, you're, uh, you, you want to begin to memorize Scripture, I would encourage you to memorize 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. So one thing the Bible makes clear that in order for us to become a new person, it was no cheap transaction. It was, it was simple for us. We, all we had to do was hear the gospel message. We heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit of God convicted us. We understood that we needed to be saved. We repented of our sin. We put our faith and trust in Christ. And so we were saved. But as I think about the transaction for God, it was a very costly transaction. He paid a great price for our, our salvation. It took the death of the second person of the triunity or the trinity of God. Jesus, the Son of God, not just, think about this, not just death, but a brutal death, a bloody death, a difficult death. As God took not only the physical aspect of it, but think about this aspect that God took your sin. I don't know if you ever stop to think about how much sin every one of us have, and even as believers, we still sin every day. But when I think about the sins of humanity, that all of those sins were heaped on Jesus Christ, and And Jesus died on that cross to make sufficient payment for anyone who would be willing to turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That God would save them and give them eternal life. It was a brutal, bloody death to pay the penalty associated with our sin. So Paul's point in bringing us and this church at Colossae to this point is to remind us that salvation is an instant transaction. But with it, it also requires us to give some attention to some things. Now, don't get me wrong. I want you to understand, I don't believe that you're saved by works. No one gets saved because of what they do. They get saved because of what they trust and what they believe in, what, where their faith and their confidence is. But that being said, it means that God didn't just save us to take us to heaven. God says, now with that salvation, there are certain things that I would, would say that are, go along with that. There are certain things that we need to understand that come along uh, 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 with our salvation. We're saved in a glorious moment, but again... Uh, that with anything costly, there's an ex- expectation that you're going to value it. You're going to treat it not like some tr- cheap trinket, but you're going to put value on it. And so as a result of that, you're going to give some attention to it. My dad didn't get that car restored and just stick it in the garage and say, you know what? I don't care how anybody treats it. No, no. He was very particular about keeping that car up and, and, and all those type of things. And, and I'm thinking that's just an automobile. But if we're talking about our salvation and what God paid for us, then there's an expectation that you and I would give some attention to some things that, think about this, that helps the world to see our salvation, that helps us to demonstrate to the world that we are truly believers. So would you notice what those responsibilities are here to this new man that are listed for us here in this passage? Notice, first of all, that if we're going to have this new man and his responsibilities, the first thing we must do is recognize that there's equality in all in Christ. Look at what he says in verse number 11 again. We've already read it, but he says that there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but in Christ, but Christ is all and in all. So in the early days of the church, there were 
Well, there was just, if you want to say it this way, there was some prejudice. So when we think about the early church, the first church that Jesus started during his earthly lifetime, it was primarily made up of Jewish believers. Jesus began the process of traveling throughout Israel and calling men and women to himself, and they would come and follow him, so much so that when he died, the Bible says there was 120 in the upper room. And of course, on the day of Pentecost, which was a day in which the gospel and the Holy Spirit came upon the church and filled them, and they went out and preached, and the Bible says God added 3,000 to that church that day. They were saved, they were baptized, and added to them. So when we think about that, they were primarily, almost all of them were Jewish believers. Some of them had come from different parts of the Roman Empire, had come to Jerusalem to worship, but they'd heard the gospel, they'd heard this, this truth that Jesus the Messiah had come, that he died on the cross, and they needed to repent of their sin, and understand that God would forgive them based upon what Jesus would do. And so that church for probably the first five or six years, was primarily made up of Jewish people. And at a point, because of persecution, they began to scatter. The Bible says they went down to Samaria. The Samaritans, of course, were kind of half Jew, half Gentile. There was a, a prejudice there of the Jews towards the Samaritans. But, you know, they began to realize, okay, God is saving some folks. But we come to Acts chapter 10, and we find a struggle, don't we? We find that Peter is asked by the Lord to go down to a Roman centurion's house by the name of Cornelius. And Peter's resistant. God has to give him a vision. And God has to say, what I've cleansed and what I have purified, don't call common. And at at about that point, uh, he's kind of asking himself this question, what's that all about? There's a knock at his door because God had appeared to Cornelius and said, you send for Peter. He's over in Joppa. And God said, now there are guys at your door. You go with them. Don't ask any questions. And he follows them to, to Cornelius' house where he preaches the gospel. And he watches these Gentiles as the Holy Spirit of God comes on them. And he understands that they too can be saved. But there's a problem because a lot of the Jewish believers say, you know, I don't know that we can really accept these Gentiles. They may need to, some of them may need to obviously follow the law. They, they need to have circumcision and follow the law of Moses. And of course, we read in Acts chapter 15 about the, 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 the rendering by the, by the leadership of the Jewish church that no, they didn't need that. They just needed to live by faith and to live a holy life. But do you understand that between the Jews and the Greeks, there was some separation. There was this wall that kind of divided. The Jews kind of had this prejudice against the Gentiles. Well, then he mentions not only does he say Jew or Gentile there, but he, he mentions the Greeks. The Greeks were the intellectuals. They were the, they were the learned. The Greeks thought of themselves as the superior race. They, they were educated. And so they kind of looked down on perhaps other Gentiles. And he mentions the Scythian there. And the Scythian was kind of the lowest of the lows, you know. He, uh, the Greeks and the Gentiles. And then there were the Scythians who were the, the really the lowest rung of the ladder. And what, is the, what does Paul say to us? He said, I want you to understand that in Christ, when a person is saved, God doesn't see us by our race. He doesn't see us by our education. He doesn't see us by our social economic status. He sees us as being in Christ, and Christ is in all and above all. And so his admonition to us as believers is that, look, we don't get this point where, hey, I'm this, and so I'm therefore superior over someone else in the church. No, no, in the church we are all equal. We are of the same blood. We've been bought by the same price. We are in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if you have, a, have several letters after your name because of, uh, of education or you don't even have a high school diploma. In Jesus Christ, we are equal. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if you're Asian or uh, Caucasian. It doesn't matter because we are in Christ and we need to see each other that way. 
Man, that's one of the great things about being in a church and understanding there's no division in the church. It's not racial. It's not economic. It's not educational. We are together. And so, again, we understand that he's saying that to us. I think about our church, the Cleveland Baptist Church. As I mentioned this morning, we're 60 years of age, but we have never been a wealthy church. We've not had a lot of wealthy people in our church. Most of our church in the, in the day in which it was really founded, a, man, a lot of those men from West Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee, after the war had come up north to the industrial cities like Cleveland and Detroit, Akron, where rubber was being made for cars and tires, and they left those places down there because there were no jobs, and so they came up to, to, up to Cleveland, and most of the men in our church in the early years were men who worked at Ford and Chevy and the steel mill, and so they weren't highly educated, but they were hardworking men who went to work every day and made a living for their family. And I'm just simply saying that, it didn't, you know, we've never been a, a highfalutin church, and, and our church is really what I call a cosmopolitan church. Man, I, I love the fact that as I come here, I see all kinds of different people in this church. And that's really what ought to be a church ought to be about, is the fact that we make up the population that surrounds us. We, we ought not to be just, well, this is only a certain type of person can come here. No, no. No, the church is open for any person who is willing to trust Jesus Christ and submit themselves to the leadership that God places in the church and, and to follow through and do what God has said. And so, again, it's an encouragement to us as we think about our, our responsibility as a believer is to look at each other as equals. The second thing I point out to you here about our responsibility is that we have an exhortation to purposely have a certain character trait of the Christian life. Look at verses 12 through 14. Put on, therefore... He says in verse number 12, put on, therefore, as elect of God, holy and beloved. So the first thing he is, there's certain, there are certain character traits that enhance the Christian life. That phrase in verse number 12, it's, it's the idea that we are elect of God. Now, in other words, what he's saying is we've been chosen by the Lord. Now, don't let that make say more than it really does say. There are some people who say, well, you know, God has chosen only to save certain people and the rest... He has damned to go to eternity in hell. I don't believe that at all. I believe that God made the choice to save us. That's what election is. He made the choice to save us. He came, came from heaven to die on the cross. And here's his promise. He said, I, I, as I'm being preached, whosoever will may come. And, and those that come to me, I will in no wise cast out. And I'm just simp simply saying that anyone who comes to Jesus Christ and accepts him are part of the elect. They're part of those who have been chosen by God because they will respond to him. But anyone is able to come. So with that position, notice what happens there in verse number 12. He says, put on, therefore, as the elect of God. Now notice, please, with that position, we are holy and we are beloved. God has said, here's my expectation of you as a believer, that you would live this holy life, that you are holy. Now, obviously, we can talk about sanctification as a position in Jesus Christ. When we get saved, we've been placed in Jesus. We've been justified. So sanctification is a position God has chosen us and placed us or saved us and put us in into him, into him. But the idea of sanctification is not just a position, but it's also a practical aspect that we're to be working in our life every day to say, you know what, there's some things that I did yesterday that I'm not proud of. And I maybe said something or I thought something or maybe I, I'm not behaving the way that I should. And so I'm going to work in my life today to make myself uh, by the grace of God as the Holy Spirit has convicted me to do better in my life. And so there's positional sanctification. There's practical sanctification. And so we're holy. And notice because we're holy, we're beloved. God, has lo God loves us because we're this new person. 
In Christ being in us, there are certain things that go along with that standing. We are to purposely, notice this, we are to put them on. We're to put them on. That word, that phrase, put on, is used three times here. And it's, it's, it's written in what is known as the imperative uh, form, in which it means not just a suggestion. In other words, he's saying, well, you know, this would be a good idea if you do this. No, no, he's saying, my expectation is that you will do this. This is a command that you take off certain things out of your life. You read that in the, the verses prior to this. And now he says, there's my command now that you're going to put on these things into your life. So as we think about that, it's the idea of like changing clothes. I suppose every person has had this experience. You know, you're, you uh, maybe come home from work and there's something that you have to do that requires the removal of your good clothes to put on some work clothes. I, uh, I, I, love, I love to work in my yard. I don't get a lot of ch- chance to do that. If we don't have a big yard, I'm grateful for that because it takes a lot of work. The more yard you have, the more you have to take care of. So our yard is not, I call it a postage size stamp yard, but probably here in New York City, it probably looks pretty big. Uh, but the truth of the matter is I still mow my own grass. And so I come home from the office and I, uh, I don't mow my grass in a white shirt and tie. All right. I come home and I take off those clothes and I put on my dirty or my, my old blue jeans that have paint spots on them. And I have certain shirts that I wear for yard work because they obviously go along with the task. And there are some times when I come home from the office that I have just a window of time. So I come home, take off my clothes, put on my old clothes, and when I'm done, I'm dirty. I've got dirt and grass on me, so I have to jump in the shower, wash that stuff off, and then I have to put my good clothes back on. So I'm taking off and putting on. And so that's the idea here is there's some things we have to get rid of because they're not conducive to our Christian life. And there's some things we have to put on because they are. So notice what we're to have. What are we to put on? He says we're put on a heart of compassion. He says in in, in verse number uh, 12, he says, bowels and mercies. And when we think about that idea among the ancients, among the New Testament era, in that culture, those folks thought that their, really their, their, their emotions rose from, the, from what we call the, the gut level, so to speak, the bowels. And so he's talking about having a heart of compassion. You know, we, we ought to be people who are not cynical. We ought to be people that are not hard. Uh, we need to be people that look at folks with compassion, not just say, man, look at that person. I know you probably had the same experience I've had. I've been, you know, someplace and I've seen a, seen a man or a woman and they've got more metal on them than a 747. And they're all marked up with tattoos. And sometimes if we're not careful, we get, well, look at that. No, our heart ought to break for that. Our heart ought to say, you know what? By the grace of God, I could be there. And so I need to have compassion. I need to, I need to look at that person with some compassion and realize what they need is, uh, is Jesus Christ. They need a relationship with Him. And so he says we need to have a heart of compassion. He says then we need to have kindness. He, he goes on to make that statement. He says, bowels and mercy, kindness. That's the idea of goodness. To have some integrity in our life. You and I need to be people who are good. Uh, when, the, when people at work think about us or people in the, our community think about us, uh, they may not necessarily always understand us, but they may think, you know, there's something good about that person. They have a good heart. They do the right things. And, and so he says that we're, we're, we should have this idea of kindness. Then he says we're to have humility. The idea of humility there means modesty. We're, we're, we're humbleness in many respects is to really not to seek the, 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 the limelight. Now, there are times when we're thrust into that limelight. But I'm just simply saying that the idea here is that we're not 
full of pride. We're not always putting ourselves forward. But there's a sense of modesty about us that we're, you know, we're, we're saying, you know what, I, I don't have to be the most important person. I don't have to always be right. I, I just want to be right with God. And if I can be a help or a blessing, I, I don't necessarily have to always put my opinion out there. I can have a sense of humility and modesty. Then meekness, that's a gentleness of spirit. That's the idea of strength under control. And then we're to be patient with people. Notice what he says there in verse 13. He says we're to be long-suffering. End of verse number 12. Forbearing one another. We're to be patient with people. We've got to be slow to get angry. I have to tell you, it's one of the reasons I don't like New York City, because I get angry in a hurry. Beep, beep, get out of my way, right? Uh, So we we obviously, you know, I'm not real patient, and so it tries my patience when I get in. In, in traffic and, and those type of things. But we need to learn how to be patient people. And, and we need to obviously be slow to be angry. We, we ought to be able to, he says, we're to forbear one another. You know, you may find here in the church there's somebody that's not growing as fast as you're growing. And maybe they're not getting it at this point. And you say, well, why aren't they? Well, maybe it took you a little bit longer than someone else as well. And so we're to forbear. We're to put up with each other. That's what he's saying there. And then forgiving goes along with forbearing and, and with patience because of what Christ has done for us. And then notice charity. Charity, he says in verse number uh, 14. And above all, these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And of course, charity is that agape type of love, that love which God has. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. So those are things that he has commanded us. This is not just suggestions. He's saying, these are commands of what I want you to do. Now, notice the exhortation for, for this kind of conduct, that it brings honor to the Lord. Now, notice something happens here in verse 15. If you look at verses 12 through 14, you're going to find that there's just these statements that are made that are, if you want to say it this way, they were, they're directed at every individual believer. So, in other words, the idea of putting on and putting off. The believers that put off some things, they're to put on some things. But notice what happens in verse number 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body. Be ye thankful. So let me time out for just a moment. I'm sure your pastor has made this statement, but one of the great things about the King James Version of the Bible is the fact that it's so accurate in, its, in using its, even its pronouns. And so when we think about the way the Bible uses pronouns, any pronoun that is... A, has a T, thee and thou, is singular. It refers to an individual. But anytime you see a pronoun that has a Y, you or your, it's referring to the collective group. So in verses 12 through 14, he's talking to the individual. He said, here's what you need to do as an individual. Now he says, I want to talk to you as a church. So beginning in verse number 15, he's saying to the church, here's what you need to be doing as a church collectively. And put on the, and let the peace of God collectively rule in your hearts to which you are also called in one body and be thankful. So he's talking to the church. The church is the body, isn't it? The church is the body. It's who we are. It's the body of Christ. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, speaking to the church richly in all wisdom. And then we're to, as a result of that, we're to teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. So, what I'm saying to you is that, obviously in verses 12 to 14, we have these commands that are to us individually, so that as we do them, and then we come together as a church, and we do as individuals, because we've done this, he's saying that the church can be a a better place, a stronger place, because we make this difference. Now, I started talking to you about my dad's classic car. It was a car that got some attention just because of what it was. 
However, when the effort was put forth to restore that, it got real attention. You couldn't go any place without people in that car at that point, without people just gawking. In other words, it, it grabbed your attention. I, I'm telling you, you couldn't hardly pull it out of the driveway without the neighbors looking and saying, there they go in that car again. You pull up to the corner and people would be walking down the street. People would come, coming by in other cars and they, you could see their heads turn. Even as they're driving their cars, they see their heads turn looking at that automobile. So, you, you, again, you didn't see a car like that every day. So it stood out. It would grab your attention because it was special. Now, that seems to be the thought that's contained in this passage. In other words, when we think about the church, see, we're living in a day and age when people are doing everything in the world to draw a crowd to a church. So, so we, we see people today, you know, they're, um, you know, I mean, it's like, okay, well, what do we have to do to get a crowd? What is it that people want? Oh, they want a rock band, so we'll put a rock band in the church. Oh, they want short sermons, so we'll give them a five-minute soundbite while we have 45 minutes of music, and then we'll send them packing. So we're doing everything in the world to draw people to the church, thinking that that's what is necessary so that we can reach them. Can I just help you understand that God, the church is special in and of itself. In other words, the fact that we're saved and God has made us into his body, we are special. But when we as the people of God put forth the effort to be what we should be, in other words, we get rid of the old, we take off the things that are negative, we put on the things that are positive, and as a body we practice those things among us. I want to tell you something, people can't walk into the church without saying, whoa, something's going on there. It grabs our attention. I'm saying to you that the things that we need to do, the, the things that are so necessary for a church to, not to succeed, because success is not about numbers. Success is about having the power of God upon your life. And I'm just simply saying that we could, we could do a better job as God's people if we would be willing to put forth the effort. See, the church is no cheap thing. We ought not to cheat, treat it as some cheap trinket. We, we, ought, we ought to understand how expensive the price of, of the church is. The Bible says that it... Christ purchased the church with his own blood. So that being the case, it means that as an individual, that you and I, who are members of a church, should say, you know, what is my responsibility? How can I be the the best church member so that when people walk in, it's like God's there. God's in the midst of his place. Because it's just, it's special in and of itself. But when we treat it as something special and we do our part, I'm telling you that it's as if God is saying, Look, I will, I will draw people to you. I will bring to that body what is necessary because you are doing what God wants you to do. That's his message to the church of Colossae. So the question is tonight is, are we really putting the emphasis where God puts the emphasis? Do we understand the part that we play? You may say, well, I'm just, I'm just, I just attend this church. I, I don't have any responsibility. I, I, I've mentioned this at lunch today, how, how much I appreciated the quality of the music today. It was wonderful. The choir did a great job. And, and of course, uh, you know, just the, the gifts that are, are, are obvious here with people playing piano and being able to do those type of things. But I'm just simply saying, you, you may say, well, I, I don't sing. At this point, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I'm not even an usher. Well, the point is, is that if you're saved you're, and baptized, you're a member of this church. If you joined it, you have a responsibility to help this church by your personal life. And you can only do that as you understand the importance of the church and the value of the church and realizing that you play a part that is not just insignificant because every person that is part of the body helps the body. 
And if we don't get that, then we're missing the point that God is trying to get to us. I have parts of my body, obviously, that are more prominent than others. And I have to tell you that some things that perhaps are unseen sometimes can cause the entire body to have a problem, you know. I mean, you know, you get, you get something hurting on your inside, you maybe wrench your knee and nobody sees it, but boy, you sure feel it, don't you? But that's because every part of the body, no matter how, whether it's visible or not, plays a part of how well the entire body does. And so with that being said tonight, I come back to what Paul says here, that again, we're living in, in, in a time in which the Lord is saying to us, look, value what I value. If you've not put on these things in your life, if you've not taken off some other things in your life, he said you need to put off, get rid of the dirt, get rid of the the soil clothes and put on these new clothes because it enhances the church. And so I share with you that tonight, that as we think about what God is doing here in this place, the Open Door Bible Baptist Church of Astoria, that every one of you, if you're saved tonight and you're baptized and you're a member of this church, you play a part in this church. And so Paul's admonition to the church at Colossae wasn't just to the church at Colossae. It was for every one of us who are members of a church. Because God wants the world and those that come into the doors of the church to realize, well, these people really believe this. This is not just some cheap trinket as far as they're concerned. They value what I value. They're willing to put forth the effort because that's what is commanded. And I'm telling you that God honors that. So as we think about that tonight, I want you to understand that you play a part. I play a part. So well, of course you play a part. You're, you're a pastor. I wasn't always a pastor. I sought many years as a, as a young person, as a, as a teenager growing up in a church. And, a, and I, I have to tell you, there were times that I wasn't doing my part. And I'm so glad that at a point in time in my life I realized, man, there's some, some things that I need to do as a believer. Because I'm part of something very special. And I hope you realize that tonight, if you're saved and you're baptized, you're part of something special. It's the body of Christ. And if you're, sa- if, if you're here tonight and you're not saved, you can be saved. If you're here tonight and you're saved and not baptized or not a member of the church, can I tell you that you, know, you need to get, get, get that aspect taken care of because you need to be a part of something that God values, which is the church. And through that church, of course, we can make a difference in this world. Would you bow your heads together with me in prayer tonight? Thank you for listening. Thank you for paying attention.